This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Janet Jacob Erickson is an associate professor in church history and doctrine in religious education at Brigham Young University. She received a bachelor's degree in nursing and a master's degree in linguistics ESL at BYU, and then decided to pursue a PhD in family social science from the University of Minnesota. After completing her PhD, she joined the faculty in the School of Life at BYU in 2007, where she taught about family processes and the history of work and family for women. She miraculously met and married her husband, Michael, when they were both 34 years old. She left her full-time position at BYU when they were blessed with children, LaDon, now 12, and Peter, now 9. That is when she really started learning about family life. In her time away from BYU, she has been a research fellow of the Wheatley Institution and Institute for Family Studies, as well as a columnist for the Deseret News. When not studying about or writing about the family, she loves singing, playing the harp, learning from and with her husband and laughing with her children. Welcome to the Still Rowing Podcast. I am your host, Tara McCausland, and a very warm welcome to Janet Erickson. Thank you so much, Janet, for being here. Oh, I'm so privileged to be on Tara. Thank you. Thanks for doing this podcast. Yeah. Well, I uh, told Janet that I first heard her on the follow him podcast, a little plug for the follow him podcast, which I love, Um, but she was just so articulate and just, she's such a sharp lady. I know that you will learn a great deal from her and we will be talking about uh, the proclamation on the family. There are so many facets to this We certainly won't have time to delve into every aspect of this important document, but with this episode coming right in between Mother's and Father's Day, I've asked Janet to share some of her awesome research about the unique contribution of mothers and fathers to a child's development, but we will also discuss how, contrary to the opinions of some, the proclamation is an incredibly inclusive timely and prophetic document that can bless individuals and help us achieve the greatest happiness in our family relationships. So to start us off, Janet, can you tell us a bit about the events leading up to the announcement of the family proclamation, as well as how has the world shifted on issues related to marriage and family since the proclamation was first introduced in 1995? Yes, a really great question, Tara. It's interesting. So a lot of people talk about, wow, this was not innovative at all, right? Like, mm-hmm. And I understand that. It's interesting though, for me at the time, whatever I'd been studying, from the, it, if we look at what happened to the family across time, late 1960s, you have some critical changes. One is you have the sexual revolution, which was really a movement for women to kind of, to be able to be what they thought was equal to men engaging in sexual relations without having uh, consequences, right? Mm -hmm. Women had had gotten pregnant and now with contraception widespread in 1968. And then you have Roe v. Wade made the decision in 1973. You have this just, right, we can do this. We can engage as men have been doing for millennium without having the same repercussions. And so there was a shift in how people were entering marriage, the kinds of sexual relationships prior to marriage, how um, courtship happened. That all changed a lot in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. The divorce rate, I think we think about it as really recent. Well, it it took off in the 70s, massive increase in divorce in the 1970s and across the 80s. And then it actually started to taper off in by the mid 90s. And so you have that already, what had happened by that time is you have this breaking apart of marriage from sex, from children. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's something very significant about that rupturing. And, and it's because when we think about children and well-being and development, there's, there's some core pieces that really facilitate children's development. Stability is really important. Investment 
from the adults in their lives because they depend on strong relationships actually for development to happen. And so the rupturing of sex from marriage from children meant a dramatic increase in the fragility of relationships, the way that we had known them in terms Mm -hmm. of development. And so by 1995, that was all well in play. Like that had all, and maybe in our church culture, we weren't experiencing that, but that was, that was, that already had really happened significantly. So since 1995, what's been interesting is we've seen other issues emerge. Like we, once the family had kind of been, those three things had been broken apart. Then you introduce all kinds of things. Like, does it matter if you have a man and a woman? Does it matter if they're married? Does it matter if um, it does gender really exist? So we would meaning gender differences, I should say. So by the 1970s, maybe 1968, late 1960s, you see the feminist movement, which really was, I think, in in the best intention, it was it was responding to some significant challenges to women, mm-hmm. which were an understanding of women um, being defined by culture, uh, that who you are and what you did and how your relationships were and the kind of person you were was defined by culture instead of a sense of agency for women around that and acting. Right. Um, and, and their very narrow sphere of influence, what a good woman would be and do was, was very narrow. And so best intent was right. If I look at it that way, it was to break out of those problematic notions around gender and what defined womanhood. But it also meant radical feminism very clearly was very fearful of marriage. It was the risks of your life in being married were that you would inherently be in a patriarchal system. You would be subservient. You would not have control. Right. And so women face some really significant issues. The big questions at the time were, if I give my life to the development of children, have I really entered a system of subservience and inequality? And was there a way to do both? Right. And so then we enter a whole series of questions about women and, and their roles and, and some really important and helpful changes and also some significant, we've seen women's happiness decrease internationally in the time since. It's very striking. Men's has not. Women's happiness has decreased while men's has not. And, and so there's something that happened during that time that triggered some very significant changes for women and men. So in 1995, then we're, we're unpacking, well, what is gender? And are all these ideas about gender differences, are they bound up in, in cultural norms that are bad, mm-hmm. are based in patriarchy and inequality? And really good questions to ask. Um, but it led to then we moved from a biological understanding of gender, like what, what it meant to be a male was XY chromosomes, what it meant to be a woman was right XX chromosome, that biological understanding the 1950s to then the 1960s, we've unpacked sex from gender. And now we're saying, well, just because you're a man, then you've got these social norms that define what that, what you wear and what you do and how you act and the same for women and kind of pulling that out was important. And then what's happened now, I'll explain to students is we're in, we're in a psychological understanding of gender, which is what you feel or what you think you are, you are. And so if you think, and and you can imagine how that opens up some really big questions. I'll hear developmentalists say, it's a pretty significant thing that we've done to children in the last few years. We have literally put on them the task of defining their gender. Hmm. Eric Erickson, right, had the list of tasks developmentally that every child has to tackle in their developmental process. Gender was not one of those massive, massive thing to do to children. And so you have a tremendous kind of unraveling of core understandings of what it means to be a human, what it means to be a family, what it means to develop. And, and, and that's all just happened in night since 1995. So I think from 1960, we saw this rupture of sex, marriage, children. And so you saw the out of wedlock childbearing rate or the non-marital childbearing rate go dramatic increase. Um, So now we have in some populations, 78% of children being born to unmarried parents. And, And probably by the early 1990s, we started to see, oh my goodness, family structure matters quite a bit. So you had Sarah McClanahan, 
who set out in her degree at Texas to just, she had been divorced. She's a fabulous sociologist. She was going with great sophisticated statistical skills. She was going to show that divorce didn't impact kids. We'd come through mm-hmm. that decade of really increase in divorce. And the idea was what kids need is they just need happy parents. And so conflict among parents is a bad thing for kids. So if we could get them out of that, then they, it will be, as my professor said at the time, he said, we believed it was like a bad cold. A kid would give it over a bad cold and it would you know, be uncomfortable for a little bit of time, but, but they would be better off. So here's Sarah McClanahan, an honest scientist, early 1990s, the culture just breaks open with the realities about divorce hmm. and that it was associated with increased risk for children in, a, in every developmental domain that we could measure, spiritually, physically, academically, um, cognitively. Now that is not to say divorce is not the right thing to do, and I think when we think of the hierarchy of needs, children need a stable and loving environment that tends to be facilitated by marriage, right? Biological parents. And that tends to mean that there's strong investment in those children and their well being. But you can also have bad marriages, and mm-hmm. it's better for that child to be out of that environment. Um, but when we were looking at just that increase in divorce, those mostly were not high conflict marriages. And so it was connected with de- decreased well-being for children. We know family structure has mattered for the well-being of children. And that the further we get away from married, biological, loving family, the greater the increase in risk for children. And we knew that. I think just like the very beginning of the 1990s, we're understanding that. And mm-hmm. then you have kind of the fallout from all of that in the, in the time period since. It's so interesting to be able to look back and really see the prophetic nature of things. And yes. oftentimes it takes, well, it takes time to really yes. see the fulfillment of, of things that the, the prophets see afar off. So in an article in the Deseret News that came out in 2020, we read about some of the changes, some of the shifts that have taken place since the proclamation came out in 1995. Um, one of the interesting findings is that it's estimated that today about a third of young adults in the United States will never marry. Also, uh, a sizable plurality of Americans 25 years ago believed premarital sex was always or almost always wrong, but today only a quarter of Americans feel that way. Probably one of the most striking things that they shared in this article was that 25 years ago, and again, this was put out in 2020, the vast majority of Americans, nearly 70% defined marriage as between a man and a woman. In 2020, the figures have almost flipped with a significant majority of citizens now in support of same-sex marriage, some 60%, which is now a protected constitutional right. By the way, I will post this article in the show notes very interesting findings. However, you'll hear from people who are not supportive of the document, whether within or without the church, they say that the proclamation is an outmoded document, that yeah. we're, we're beyond this as a society, that we've progressed beyond the need for these types of ideals. <laughs> what have the church leaders said as far as the proclamation of the family being doctrine or not? What are your thoughts yeah. on that? just most recently, right, we heard President Oaks in this most recent general conference reaffirm that. Um, There's a talk that he gave that is very striking. This is some years ago, maybe a decade ago, where he says, the proclamation on the family and the doctrine of Christ are essential, the two essential core pieces for our salvation. And so he actually lays them side by side. And I think it's interesting that when we look at what it is that facilitates development. It is relational strength. And that's what covenants with Christ offer us. It's a relationship. And the Lord knows relationship is the way through which development happens. And it's having stability and deeply secure love and attachment that allow for development. And that is true in mortality and it's true in eternity. And so the proclamation principles really are all about facilitating the strength of relationships for development to happen mm-hmm. in healthy ways. So if we started with, so that's just to say when President Oaks lays those two side by side, he's talking about time and eternity. 
these principles are fundamental for well-being. So to the idea of out, outmoded, it's fascinating to me because every semester as I'm talking about the proclamation, I, I absolutely marvel at how more and more and more and more clear it is that these are realities. <laughs> for example, when, when we talk about marriage as being fundamental, the proclamation starts with define, you know, talking about marriage as being important. Well, when we look at what's happened with marriage and, and the fallout for children in particular, which means the fallout for society, whether it's economically, incarceration rates, academic achievement, whatever, you just see marriage is a, there's just nothing like it. There's no institution. We'll talk today about being pro-child in a post-marriage world. The marriage rate has gone down dramatically in since 1995. They were exactly right. That's been a tremendous change since then. You've seen a really long increase in adolescence. So we'll talk about this expanded period of adolescence before people get married and have children that it used to end at like 21 and now it's 31, right? Mm -hmm. And so what that's meant in terms of fertility and marriage and, and all of those things, but just to say that marriage really plays a central role and it matters a whole lot for societal well-being. And then if you go to the next part, it talks about the sacred powers of procreation. What just recently, New York Times, Washington Post, very, very right, uh, liberal leaning publications mm -hmm. coming out with realities about the sexual fallout for women and what, what relationships that are non-committed, this uh, sexual liberation has really done to the well-being of women. And you could just go on and on about what has happened in terms of women being sexualized, in terms of men. Uh, you've got that wonderful book by Mark Ragnaris. It's powerful and painful, cheap sex. We've been grappling with why are men struggling? They're not achieving academically. They're not achieving professionally. We have this great increase in the working age men who are no longer working. What is going on here? And the role of sexual relationships outside of marriage that have fostered that. So prior to 1965, you had a woman saying, I will not engage sexually with you until you are a marriageable man. And so it meant growth and development for men, that powerful gift of sexuality really pushed development because it had to happen within the, within the constraints of marriage, what that meant for men's development. So you just see all the fallout around powers of procreation. And then if we moved on to like what it means to a child to not be born into a loving married family and the, the comparisons between cohabitation, we have a lot of cohabitation with children today that we didn't have prior to 1995. And how are those children faring? And what you see is the risk to break up are even in Europe where it's very normalized, where you have more cohabitation than you have marriage then you're, you still see the risks of breakup, the fragility of those relationships relative to marriage is just, that's just a reality. Mm. And, and then when you look at what men do as providers and protectors and presiders, and that's a word to unpack that um, in an equal marriage, what does that mean? There's right. a lot to, to understand there that's very powerful, but there's just no question. Men play an, an incredible role in protecting and providing and their presence as a loving father who's involved brings a sense of order to that family that's very facilitative of well-being and women actually being able to do their irreplaceable work of nurturing life like you just can't get away from that women's capacity is unbelievable and so mm -hmm. when we think about just every part of the proclamation it becomes more and more and more clear <laughs> in a sense that these are, these are just realities. They're laws. <laughs> you know, it's fascinating to me, honestly, I think we, we just tend to do this as human beings and as society, that when there has been a problem, like you suggested in, in yeah. the 1950s, we had these very dogmatic, very boxy, constraining, yes, yes, gender roles that were problematic, but then we swing way to the other side yes. and we overcorrect. Yes. And, and that's what we have done. And I was also thinking that we have the movies, which will suggest that, you know, being single and childless yeah. is yeah. independence and freedom and, and happiness. And right. then we have data. <laughs> we right. have research that shows yes. unequivocally that family structure is so key to not just the development of yeah. children, 
yeah. but to the development of adults and their well-being. So Janet has done a great deal of research on these things. And in fact, I should have mentioned this at the beginning. I'm going to post in the show notes a couple of her presentations that she's done for the Wheatley Institute, as well as the podcast that she did with Follow Him. Um, but there, there is just swaths of research <laughs> that show us that the truths in the proclamation, they are not outmoded. They are in fact necessary yeah. and the foundation to a happy, thriving individual from birth through adulthood. Well, moving on. So our understanding of the eternal family, and that is that we have a heavenly mother and a heavenly father, and that we are their spirit children and heirs to the kingdom is really a unique belief that sets us yeah. apart as Latter-day Saints. I'm curious though, how has this doctrine influenced your relationships with others and your relationship with the divine. It's so powerful for us to know we are literally the children of father and mother. And that, that is just, we know other faiths, right? will teach powerfully about the love of God. And, and I think are instructive to us in that, but to know that it's not just coming from a place of love. It is actually coming from a reality that they are our parents. And, and so their deep concern about us, they set their hearts upon us, just like loving fathers and mothers do on earth to enable us to become all that we could possibly become. And, and what they want is they want to be with us. They want to be with us. That's how parents feel, right? Their children grow up and you have a different capacity to be with and enjoy them as they develop. You love them as children your desires for them to become all they can become and the relationship that you're able to have with them as they become your leaders, your guides um, is such a, it's joy. And mm -hmm. so our heavenly parents, they want to be with us because we are in them and they are in us and their ultimate joy and our ultimate joy is in the completion of that beautiful reality and our development to becoming as they are. And that's because they're parents. I think also when we start the proclamation, I always tell students, there is pain for every single one of us yes. around these principles and they aren't the cause of the pain. The pain is because of the brokenness of mortality and the brokenness in relationships is the source of all pain. Like the deepest pain in our lives is the result of the brokenness in relationships. We are meant for attachment. We are meant for divine oneness with others in relationships that are whole. And when that is not, we will be in pain. And, and so just to recognize that is mortality, that's inherent mortality. And this document begins by telling you, you belong to a perfect family. No exceptions. Every single one of you, whatever your makeup, whatever your predilections, whatever your genetic makeup, you belong to a perfect father and a perfect mother who love you, to whom you are the beloved child. Nothing about you can change that. Nothing will change the fact that you are their beloved child. It is the most all-inclusive language I can think of. Mm -hmm. and, and then the next promise is, we have been sent a redeemer whose whole purpose is to bear our afflictions, those, those broken relationships with us, and heal them and seal them. And so his, he, there is nothing outside his perfect capacity to redeem all the brokenness that's inherent to mortality in our broken relationships. And so the, the proclamation, it's interesting. My husband experienced divorce as a child. He, he was not a member of the church at the time, not religious at all, joins the church as a 21 year old later. And he would say that it wasn't until he was among members of the church and he heard the way they talked about their parents and their siblings, that all of a sudden he could understand the pain that he had known as a child, being an only child and having that relationship ruptured. And so when we experience the light of wholeness, we will recognize the gap in ourselves. And, and that's painful, but it also allows us to understand why we're in pain and heal from it. And, mm -hmm. and that's what the savior's whole work is. So we could run from the light. Like we could run from it and like, it's painful for me to see the ideal. Mm -hmm. I don't have it. 
But what it does give us is it gives us an understanding as to why we experience pain, why there is brokenness and what the Redeemer's whole work is to enable that healing. And, and so it's, it's a beautiful gift. It's taking both sides of the apple, if you will, the bitterness and the sweet, right? And we know the bitterness so that we can prize the good. We know what it means to have the anchor of a marriage of loving parents when we know otherwise. And the truth is we're all going to fall outside the ideal. It's inherent to mortality because we are imperfect people. We depend as much on a redeemer's help. You can get the idea because we like to feign perfection right? We like to feign because there's shame with imperfection. That's our mindset as human beings. So we like to feign that, you know, I have a perfect family um, and we'll feign that. It, and it's just better because perfectionism blocks intimacy to just totally get rid of that. And to say, I'm as dependent, my family is dependent on Christ at the same level as the Israelites depended on him for water and bread and everything that sustained life. There's no way to live outside Christ for any family to heal and be and become. And, and it's beautiful. We're all a hundred percent dependent on the Lord. And he assures us, I am your redeemer. I will part the sea. I will be the bread. I will be the water. I will be all that you need to heal these relationships eternally. That is dependent on agency, but for each of us as individuals, we are assured that absolute perfect wholeness in eternity through Christ. So, and I think that's what the proclamation does. And has that influenced me in my relationships? I think it helps me a hundred percent to know who I am. And the second part of that is to know he does not ask for my perfection. He asked for my trust in his ability to bring wholeness to relationships and to fully trust his ability to do that. So the masks come off, the perfectionism, the feigned perfectionism comes off, and I can be in an intimate relationship with him on whom I fully depend and a more intimate relationship with my children who see my imperfections really, really clearly and other people in this world that I'm in relationships with and, and just that full assurance he is here he will enable us to become one starting with marriage and children and the whole of the human family through the changes made possible in Christ. And we all 100% totally and completely depend on him to, to mm. be able to bring those changes about. So it's a pretty inclusive document. It's like, yep, you're all part of a perfect family and you are all in need of me and I will fulfill my promises. I think that one of the, the greatest challenges that people bump up against when it comes to the proclamation is they, they do feel like an outsider. Like, yeah. This doesn't, doesn't relate to me. I'm, I'm a single adult or I deal with same sex attraction or, yeah. you know, the list goes on and on, or I'm from a broken family. I'm a, div yeah. a divorcee and that recognition and that reframe that we are all outside of the ideal because yeah. we live in a fallen world helps us Number one, be more compassionate for those who especially feel outside of the lines <laughs> yeah. and that the family proclamation, it is an ideal. Yes. However, as you said, we don't run away from the light because it's too bright. Yeah. We just have to acclimate to it and recognize that the savior, he is the gap filler yeah. in all of the mess that we inevitably will experience regardless yeah. of our situation. And so, yes. and the other thing that just came to mind um, for me personally, I don't know how you are as a mother, <laughs> but I frequently forget that they were God's children first. Mm. And sometimes I can get impatient and short, you know, when they're not, yeah. you know, doing what I want them to. And I was just thinking about that, um, that talk that president Irene gave some time ago, and I believe it was president Irene where he, there was something going on in the bedroom above him. It, you know, <laughs> and he's like, I'm going to march up there. and I'm going to set him I straight. Love this story. Story. Yes. And he went up there to give his son a talking to, and the spirit constrained him and said, you don't know who this young man is. Uh, yeah. And that story stuck with me because I've had those moments as a mother where I see my child first, yes. their behavior that's bugging me, right? Yes. And then I really see yes. God's child. And I feel like without 
that elevated view, which the proclamation gives us of ourselves and all those around us. Yes. Uh, it's so easy to forget the value of the human soul. I'm grateful as a mother for the understanding that not only am I his child, but my children were his children first, and he loves them more than I can comprehend, more than I love them, and that I need to remember to treat them as such, as children oh, of God. That's so beautiful, Tara. I love how you said both of us are his children. Both of us are perfectly beloved because just barely awesome research looking at the fact that a mother holding a baby, bearing a baby in, inside her body, that, that fetus growing, her, the baby's cells are mixing with her cells. They're flooding her body the developmental cells of that infant right through her bloodstream. And so she literally will have those infant cells in her body the rest of her life Wow! in her tissues, in her heart, in her skin, in her brain tissues, right? That, that she carries the imprint of that baby. And this is all part of research, looking at what happens to her brain in the process of bearing life and how you literally are sensitized to attend to the life of this child in unbelievably strong physiological ways. It's why when I had a baby and I'd been single a long time, I was like, I cannot shut off her crying. I, I have to respond. Every cell in me hmm. is like, I have to respond to her. That is physiologically how we are designed. And I think part of it is then we feel so responsible for their well-being. We feel so responsible for them becoming the kind of person they need to be. And, and so we enter a validation framework where this child has got to validate my incredible investment here by right. them being <laughs> and validate me and my worth that I'm worth something. And so I for sure know that whole, like from the time they're little, you're like, <gasps> you're not crawling or you're not speaking or you're not as talented or whatever, right? Because I need you to validate me as a person. And when we are deeply secure in this reality that I am beloved myself as a mother, I don't need this child to be my validation. I can love them free of the need for them to make me feel okay about myself. Mm -hmm. That is easier said than done. That is a beautiful developmental journey, but I love how you said, when I know who I am in God, beloved, safe, whole, redeemed, and I know who they are in God, then I can love them without the need to control them for my well-being. And he will do that for us. He gives us that security to truly be able to love in a, in a pure way, these children. This mom told me yesterday the both powerful story. She said, she said her oldest daughter had decided to serve a mission and, and she was kind of a homebody and she was worried about her. She just was, you know, can you do that? Like just all of it, fear. And so she went to the Lord with her fears and just, I think, thinking, take more time. Let this be a longer process. We need you to develop these other ways. And strong as could be, the message was, this is not your business. <laughs> this is my child and this is between me and them. And I think we do all we can do, right? But you said mm -hmm. so beautifully, we do, we love and we grow with them and we remove the barriers to our love and we walk this journey with them and they are his child and he will work with them and he will redeem them. And he will, he will bring about the experiences they need to know him as he does for us. And this is none of our business. I mean, his, his, right? his, his work will go on in their lives. Right. Well, we could go on and on about that, that topic, <laughs> yeah. but we're on a, we're on a time schedule. So, um, so as I've mentioned, uh, Jenna, you've done a great deal of research, some really incredible research actually mm -hmm. about parenthood and the distinct roles that fathers and mothers play in raising children. As one who has studied the family system from an academic perspective, tell us more about how the proclamation fits in with your research findings. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, when I think about, I think we've talked about marriage and procreation, those things, but if we get specifically to parenting 
And, and it's very interesting, right? That line that says very clearly, first, children have a right to being born to married parents is entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony. That's strong, strong language. language. And when you look at the risk to children born outside of that structure, you understand why it says that. They have, and it's why the church would would care about how marriage is defined, for example. I mean, students will be like, why would they care? And then when we talk about what it means to children and all we know from the data in terms of the risk to children, absolutely, it's the most merciful and true and honest thing we can do is to care about how family, how family is defined because they have no say in it. They are born into situations, right? And we owe them every every chance, right? And, and we have a responsibility to give them the best opportunity for their development and growth. So there's that. But then you get to this beautiful section that says mothers are primarily responsible for the nurture of their children. Fathers are responsible to preside and provide and protect. And as I'm looking at, and then it says we are, we are obligated to assist one another as equal partners. Like it, it's such a beautiful thing because it's, it's, it can sound constraining, right? And actually it's very liberating because it, what it says is, well, nurture is a whole lot of things. Mm-hmm. Presiding and providing protecting is a lot of things. And so you find what is your, what do you feel you can do to facilitate the development of these children and the health and well-being of this family as a father and a mother. So, so fun for me to like, nobody taught me this in graduate school, but I had to write a paper later about, well, what are the distinctions between mothers and fathers? And I, I felt like I was at the top of this like incredible mountain and we could just see the very top of it, but the depth of the remarkable distinctions psychologically, physiologically, spiritually, that are part of mothers and fathers that are way beyond like who earns the money and who's primarily at home. They're, they're way beyond that. So for example, we look at the fact that a child's born and there's this flood of a bonding hormone that happens within both men and women and tons of it in women. And what we know now is that women have massive flood of oxytocin and other hormones as well that facilitate bonding. And they are also psychologically in the brain sensitized to that hormone in ways that facilitate bonding. And so the very first task that a child has when they're born is they have got to establish a relationship and they know it. They know when they come out of the womb, I have got to connect with another human being and they are sensitized to a particular human being. And we know who that is. It's across all species, almost. It's that mother. And they know her heartbeat. They know her voice. They know her smell. They actually show a predilection to her from birth because looking at her in the brain, they have a larger space that's oriented towards the face of a woman. And so there's more matter in the brain that is sensitized to actually looking into her face. And what we see is when that relationship is established, it has to be established for healthy development. This incredible communication process happens between infant and mother. And her right brain, we didn't know this until the last decade when we can literally watch brain through technology. Her right brain, which is the emotion side of the brain, the personality side of the brain, the feeling side of the brain. And so scholars will say it's the love center. Her right brain is communicating with the right brain of that infant. And that right brain of that infant isn't the language side. It's not concepts. It's, it's quite literally experiencing love and connection. And in that process of regulating together, they are regulating one another's bodies, her body's being calmed, the baby's body's being calmed. And 1 million synapses a second are being formed in that brain through the interaction of that mother. Now, what's amazing is men can develop bond. They absolutely need to. What we know, if we just look at the natural processes is mother is really important in that bonding process and developmental brain side up to 18 months. Then dad kind of comes in and he's building left side. So, I mean, just in the complementarity of their influence that way, both bonds are very important, but they're different systems and they're systems that the child needs both of, in a sense, ideally. 
So she's experiencing oxytocin. He is as well, though. If you, if, if a man, what we can see is if a man is going to be the primary bonder, you can, it requires more oxytocin. If we're injecting, okay, Mm. like we're looking, working with animals and you're, you're looking for that bonding behavior from my father. It takes a much higher dose of oxytocin for him to exhibit the same kinds of bonding behaviors as she does. And so women are just, it's just much more, they're innately primed to do that. But what's beautiful is her behaviors under the influence of oxytocin tend to be cooing and cuddling. That's that right brain communication. It's happening through eyes. It's happening through voice. It's happening through touch, body to body. She's literally building that infant's capacities and the infant's influencing her as well. He, on the other hand, oxytocin elicits tickling and tossing kinds of behaviors. <laughs> and so stimulatory kinds of behaviors. And so we bring our baby home to the hospital. The first thing I'm like, I, the first thing Mike's doing that night is like calisthenics with her, like right. her body. <laughs> and that's exactly what oxytocin elicits in him. So you see these complementary things happen all the way along. You see, for example, men tend to hold a baby as a football looking outward. Women tend to hold a baby with as much body contact as they can get. And it's illustrative of how he influences, how fathers tend to influence across the lifespan, the way the baby relates to the outside world. He's holding that baby and it's like he's communicating. I want you to see what I see. And so fathers, you've heard lots of data about incarceration rates associated with fatherlessness. And we know that, right, less likely to father presence is associated with antisocial behaviors, not not relating to the outside world in a healthy way. So dads matter actually for depression, for um, the ability to have healthy relationships across the lifespan. That closeness with dad is a big deal. And academic achievement. So the the most predictive factor of college graduation rates is involvement of a father. Hmm. So he, he has an impact on how that child relates to the outside world, how they understand rules, how they understand behavior patterns. Fathers play. They tend to play more than mothers do. And so they'll play in ways that are facilitative of learning how to manage one's emotions. And it's predictive of peer relationships. So the initial studies were like the popular boys at school and they're looking at how much father play there is and father play is associated with this peer capacity. Hmm. It shifts from physical play to more social play. So dads tend to call them names more and engage in right as a, as an adolescent. And it's like, he's pushing that child to develop the capacity to relate with their peers in, in healthy ways. Dads tend to push kids to exhibit academic knowledge. Mom will be like, run in, help them remember how to do this. Dad will stand back and say, you got this. You know how to do this. And that's connected with his orientation toward independence. Andrew Doucet, this Canadian scholar, she's looking at stay-at-home dads. And she sees dads versus moms. Either mother was working full-time and he was at home or they were divorced and there wasn't a mother. And, And it would be lunchtime. And the dad would say, go make your own sandwich. (laughs) It would be time to put on the backpack and he'd be like, put it on, tie your own shoes. And at first she's thinking, oh, these disengaged, selfish men, right? Like relative to the woman who's so connected and doing all of these things. And then she realized (laughs) nurturing is both holding close and letting go. Mm. It's essential. Like they can't become without that beautiful process of facilitating their capacity to develop independently. And so what do you see? You see a dad telling kid, climb higher, climb higher, climb higher. She's like, get off the, right, get out of that tree right now. And he's saying, I'm here to hold you. I'll catch you. Like you can do it. So men tend to be more oriented towards facilitating independence and women building core. It's so interesting with just in every way, like she'll, women tend to adjust their vocabulary and are very sensitized to what a child will understand. Happens all the time with my husband. I'll be like, they don't understand a word in that paragraph that you just said. Hmm. Well, and and that's because I'm intuitive about the words they're going to understand and where they are developmentally in ways that he isn't. But guess what's predictive of children's vocabulary? Dad. Hmm. He's really good at 
boosting that vocabulary because he's less inhibited in terms of using words that will be challenging for them. And so they, they, that's what predicts their, which is associated with intelligence and all of these other things. Right. And so you just see this, we see it with the way they intervene to discipline mothers. I just, the, the card from our daughter yesterday for mother's day. It was so interesting because she said, mom, you are good at reasoning. And then she said, you are good at making deals with us. <laughs> and it's totally consistent with the research. What she's telling me is dad, when dad steps in to discipline, he does it much less frequently, but when he does, the boundary is going to hold. He's not flexible about it. He doesn't tend to be right. It's like, he says it and it's, and men in terms of presiding, this is fascinating. It's as if they come in and speak as if they have authority Hmm. differently Hmm. than women, they bring this sense of authority. Now we could be threatened by that, but women who are right. I depend on that. I depend on the order that his manhood and good manhood, kind, righteous manhood brings to our home because it's not him bossing anybody around. I mean, it's very threatening to have a father yell because his voice is bigger and he, and he carries an authority. And so it's very dangerous. He has in a sense, more responsibility to manage himself Mm, in healthy ways because the effect can be so much more devastating when he doesn't than a mother. But it's interesting that he brings that presence and authority and it happens with discipline where he just says, this is the boundary. And he intervenes much less frequently. I'm intervening all the time. And I intervene with flexibility, with reasoning. And that's why she's saying, you're good at making deals with us, right? It's, it's, we're going to negotiate this. It can be very frustrating as a mother. I mean, sometimes there's a research that's like, she has to yell at the decibel of a lion to get the same response <laughs> as a dad does, right? <laughs> But that's really powerful. Her, that, that combination of a sense of boundary that will hold and the combination with that negotiation and reasoning and working with feelings is something unique to women and unique to men. That's both, that both of which are really important for development. Hmm. When it talks about men as protectors, literally there's a, a very valuable statement. We'll just say just by dint of his size and his shape and his voice, just being present signals to outsiders that this child will be protected. And it holds up in the research, right? So the children that are most vulnerable are children who are in situations without a father in the home. And, Mm -hmm. and so there is the signaling when that date comes to pick up a daughter and finds a man there that's a signaling of I'm watching over her and you have a responsibility or right. You will face me in a sense. And so we know girls growing up with a father, people will say a presence of a father shapes the sexual trajectory of her life. It was a really strong statement, but it's because of lots of data that suggests closeness to dad is a predictor of how early she engages sexually and with what kind of people. Mm. And if she's if she has experienced that protective love that is not sexually in any way driven from a father, it shapes her way of relating to men in a self-respecting way, right? And an expectation for how she will be treated. It's important. And so the presence of a dad really has a lot to do with her her way of relating to other men and then has a lot to do with how a boy relates to women. If a boy has experienced the protective love of a father that is pro-woman and pro-child, he relates to women in a way that is not a masculinity that is a problematic form of masculinity, or at least it facilitates that. So you just see both are really, really irreplaceable. Now, we all know people have grown up without a mother and a father who are remarkable people who've grown up without close relationships. And, and I think what this tells us is the divine design is this eternal unit of mother and father who both offer to their children unique and distinct and essential gifts and endowments and blessings. And that will be the future for all of us. (laughs) That's the assurance of Christ is to have that beautiful dynamic of male, female union 
in, in eternity. That's what it is because they, they provide a wholeness and a completeness together. So it's beautiful to think of how mm-hmm. intricate, how nuanced, how, and yet how real. And of course, mothers do lots of things that dads can do and dads do, and they approach it with their own psychological orientation. And, and we can see it's important. It's important for children's development and it's important for what it does for men and women. We offer to one another a completion that's inherent to our biology, to our, to our makeup. And, and that's a gift. It's the eternal design. However broken we experience that immortality. It's fascinating to see how biologically we have been programmed to do certain things as men and women. And, and going back to what you said at the beginning of that piece, obviously it does say in the proclamation that women are to nurture their children. That's their primary responsibility. Men are to preside, provide, protect. But I loved how you said that there's a lot of open-endedness to those and we don't have to feel boxed in into gender roles. We all have unique skills and and traits and qualities because I, I think of myself and, and sometimes I feel like I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty like type A, a strong personality (laughs) and sometimes feel like I don't fit into that nurturing box. But I, if I open it up, I recognize, no, I do. It just, it might look a little different for me than it might for someone down the street. And so this proclamation wasn't intended to ever, Mm. again, not not to overuse this, but to box us in to something that we feel like we are not, but to give us a guide. Yeah. It will give us a, a compass to follow. I love that thought, breaking it open, right? Nurturing. If I ask students, is your mother protective? Mm-hmm. They're going to be absolutely. My mother is yeah. protective, uh-huh. right? <laughs> Does your mother provide all the time? She's providing in all kinds of ways to me. Does your father nurture? Yes. Right. And so there's this beautiful overlap. And that's why I love the language where it says primarily responsible for mm-hmm. the nurturing of children. And, and ensuring that they are protected, ensuring that they are provided for these kind of stewardships that, right. That are a way of us drawing upon the beautiful gifts that we have and doing what we can to ensure that children are given, even if the color, the hues through which we do that and goodness, like I've carried like this, what a nurturing mother looks like and felt like I am not that like that is, <laughs> that's the person down the street for sure. Right. right? And yet what does nurturing mean? It's remarkably encompassing, mm-hmm, right? That's mm-hmm. so I love how you just said that we get narrow, I think naturally and comparative, right? right? Even though it's sort of a mirage, <laughs> like whatever we have in our heads is a mirage. <laughs> and that's just our natural human instinct, isn't it? Yes. So yes. that's not the Lord. That's us. Putting yes. those boxes around ourselves. And we, yes. We can feel very liberated by this guidance that the Lord has given us, understanding totally. that it is for our, our best interest. Yes. I wanted to do this episode because I, I do recognize that sometimes there are those within the church who feel like they are constrained by the proclamation, that it is yeah. outmoded, that they feel way too outside of the lines for yeah. it to apply to them. I'm just curious, perhaps what are a couple of the biggest concerns that you've encountered with your students teaching the proclamation and how have you responded to those concerns? Yeah, that's so powerful. I, it is so interesting. The first day when I say we, this class is about the proclamation and I sense anxiety and some of us as colleagues have had students say, I'm not in that document right? Like I'm, I identify LGBTQ and I'm not in that document. Others will say one strongly said that God is not my God, mm. as you said, alienating. And Tara, at the end of the semester, I will ask them, how has your understanding of the proclamation changed? And it is so beautiful over and over and over again for them to describe this as a document of light and love. And they can feel the love of the Lord in teaching truths to bless their lives in pursuit of these ideals, right? These laws, if you will, that are about the capacity for developing relationships, the capacity for developing intimacy. And that God really, his, I think the whole work of the Redeemer 
is to enable us to become the kind of people who can be heaven, not a place, Mm -hmm. but be in intimate relationships. And he is working with me all day in teaching me how to love better, how to not be in a validation framework, how to leave the, the perfectionism mode and enter into genuine intimacy. And I think what they see in the proclamation is that is what it's trying to do. It is answering the hunger of every human being. I want to be in beautiful relationships with other people. That's what I yearn for. That's what I am made for. And here the proclamation outlines why marriage helps facilitate that, why using the powers of procreation within marriage facilitates that, why fathers offering their distinction of mothers because life cannot be created outside of male and female. We are each walking around as the union of a man and a woman in some, right, all of us. And so how, why that's important, how that facilitates intimacy, how I am in my expression intimacy embodied. The intimacy of a man and a woman is what embodied me. And, and so you just think it's all about, I think when it, when we can see it as meeting the hunger of every human soul to be loved, to be known, to be one with others, that is what it is designed to do. And so we start out by, right, the inclusiveness of the document, as we talked about already, the reality of a redeemer, and that he is helping us. We, we can use the proclamation to feign perfection all day and all night. We can be like, yep, I meet all those standards, check the box and have no capacity for intimacy. And, and, so, and that's not joy and that's not happiness. And so if we really get down to what the proclamation teaching, that's what it is. It's not us standing up saying, I've met these boxes. It's us really, really being able to self-confront in ways that allow us to develop the capacity for intimacy and connection and having the foundational developmental pieces that enable that, that facilitate that process for all of us coming from marriage that's strong and healthy, right. And, and forming marriages that are strong and healthy. And it's, it's helping us meet the deepest yearnings of our souls. That's what it does. As much as marriage goes away, the population wants marriage. It is the dream that refuses to die as hard as it seems to get as difficult as it seems to enter into as hard as it seems to sustain sustain. That is the hunger, right? That is. And, and so the Lord is trying to help us know how, and then he sends his son to walk with us the entire way through and give us the grace to become able to have those kind of relationships. So I think when they understand that, they can't help but feel like, what a kind and loving God, that he would give us a map to meet the deepest yearnings of my heart and a redeemer to make it possible. I'm sure that's why President Oaks puts them together. Mm, So good. I was reading in the Come Follow Me lesson today about the fact that, you know, we all know that it took 40 years for the children of Israel to go from Sinai to Canaan, but they said in the explanation, it clearly didn't take 40 years geographically to travel that distance, but it took 40 years to prepare a people that would be fit to be called his people. And I think, you know, we just like the Israelites, they took with them Egypt and we're all dealing with a great deal of cultural baggage that we just are having to constantly sift through. And it, it can be very confusing. If we can go back to, just like you said, at the beginning of the proclamation is this inclusive language that we are all a part of God's great family and that we are his child beloved by him, by our heavenly mother, and that we have been provided a savior so that we can overcome this fallen world and whatever brokenness we experience in ourselves or in our families, we can have hope in this perfect plan because of Jesus Christ. So I, I'm so grateful for your testimony and your experience. Also your, your research, it all sheds beautiful light into these mm-hmm. truths. So mm-hmm. thank you for the time and the effort that you put into this, because we oh. need voices like yours in academia to continue to hold up this light. Thank so you, Tara. we have to finish with our final question though, which is why are you still rowing and choosing faith in Jesus Christ and his restored church? It's remarkable to think of 
the merciful redeemer who walks each journey with us, each day with us, who is our way maker, who parts seas, who comforts, who directs, who guides, and whose truths lead us to happiness. And I can just say many, many personal experiences feeling the, the reality of a savior and his power. Um, but then to see how in human experience, those truths play out. That's what research really is. Social science research is just gathering human experience and, and recording it. And that it illustrates the truths of God and his love and yearning for us to have happiness eternally. And I, I just think so many experiences, so much evidence, so much um, connection that I can't help but say like Peter, when the Savior said, will you also go away? To whom would we go? To whom would I go? For so much truth, for power to overcome, for redemption, for exaltation, for resurrection, for the assurance of relationships, for the change, the possibility of change in me, to become love as he is, to whom would I go? And he is that. He is all of that. He is there is no limit. I love how Carrie Milstein will say, we are no match for the atonement of Jesus Christ. It is all power. He took it all, lifted his hands to heaven and said, glorify thou me, right? Takes all the darkness and the brokenness and says to the father, and he did it. And he overcame all of it. And he assures me full, full on, he will do that for me and for my family, and for the eternal family of his father. So, so grateful. He's in the boat with us. We're not rowing alone. Thank you so much, Janet. Again, appreciate your time and your testimony today. Thank you. Keep up the amazing work. Thank you, Tara. Blessings to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at churchofjesuschrist underscore sr underscore podcast and on Facebook at churchofjesuschristsrpodcast. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, that would help us spread the word about Still Rowing. Thanks again for listening.